All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. And we, for those who've been around, which is a lot of you, we've just kind of finished our systematic theology series, which was ending with eschatology. So we spent a few months in Revelation and some eschatological end-time issues. And this is the beginning of a new series that will go at least to the end of the fall is the plan. And uh, we're calling it Against the Culture, For the Culture. And we we're, we're wanting to really look at the world as it is right now. Uh, we can all feel what's going on. We see it everywhere we look. And it's really the culture at this point is, is trying to uh, take its beliefs, especially with the sexual revolution and with uh, a lot of social justice issues, and really trying to enforce that upon everyone in our society. And there are now consequences if we do not go along with, with what is being said. And so we thought it would be helpful to spend an extended time talking about these things. This will not be a simple exposition of Scripture. We're not walking through a book of the Bible here. We're not going through Revelation or anything like that. Uh, We're going to be looking back and forth between the culture and Scripture. And you, you don't have to turn to this verse. It's kind of an obscure verse, but people quote it now and then. Of all things, it's 1 Chronicles 12, 32, and it's just a list of names. But in the middle of this list of names, it says this. It speaks of the men of the tribe of Issachar, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, of, the, uh, of men of Issachar, it, sp- it speaks of those who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. So th- that phrase is pretty interesting to me. They, they understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. Now, what that means is, did they understand what God's Word was saying? Well, yes, they understood God's Word, But God's Word gives us doctrine. It gives us principles. It gives us God's truth. But does God's Word immediately tell us exactly how to apply everything to every minutia of daily life? Well, not precisely. And so it takes wisdom to look at God's Word, study it thoughtfully and carefully, and make application to the culture in which we live. We have to both understand God's Word, and we have to understand the times in which we live so that we would know how we ought to live. And so we're going to be switching back and forth between Scripture and the culture and trying to better understand what is going on around us as, as things are just uh, unusual, I think, in, in, in where we're at. Greg, any opening thoughts before we pray? Um, no, I mean, I just I wholeheartedly agree. Like, we've got to be discerning as to what's going on. Uh, we've got to know what uh, is driving all that we're seeing right now. Um, the thought patterns, the philosophies, the ideologies, all of that that underlie so much of what's on the surface. We've got to know what's driving that. If we don't, it's easy to become caught up in it and to be influenced by it. Even when we're trying to live for God and trying to you know, um, follow Scripture, if we don't know what the, the foundation and the fuel for so much of this craziness is, if we don't know what that is, then we can't recognize it and we can unwittingly adopt it and even bring it into our own thinking and into the church and start thinking that we're doing something that's helpful when in actuality we're bringing in ways of thinking that are absolutely contrary to Scripture and the Gospel. So we have to be very discerning and very much on guard. Yeah, I, got, I had the chance to, to speak at our chapel at Westminster where I teach a couple of weeks ago. And I, we're going through the fruit of the Spirit in the chapel messages each uh, week or whatever is, you know, love, joy, peace. And I got love. And I spent a chunk of my chapel message simply differentiating how Scripture defines love with how our culture is defining love. 
I mean, it was almost like just the most basic thing I could do is just explain what love even is because we hear the term love all over the place, but it's, it's being filled up with definitions that are not coming from the Bible. And so, so often, like you're saying, we'll buy the word love, but it's a package with material inside of it. And if we don't know how the word's being defined, we might be bringing in phrases and word terminology that sound great and biblical. Who doesn't want to you know, be behind the word love? And yet we might have in that box a whole bunch of unbiblical thoughts that are, that are, that are packed inside. Uh, what's going on. So could you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, Lord, we are thankful that you do not leave us to ourselves um, to try to navigate this godless, Christ-hating world. Um, Thankful, We are so thankful for your word um, and the Holy Spirit who works through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that when we do exposition and exegesis, that we'd be faithful. Uh, But God, we pray for an unusual amount of wisdom as we seek to apply what's clear in Scripture to issues that might not be directly addressed by the Scriptures, Lord. Uh, But we know that because your word is truth, that there is a way we need to think, and there are ways we do not need to think. And Lord, I pray that you will shape our hearts and our minds according to the truth uh, through today and through the coming weeks. Lord, help us in, in how we uh, approach issues, how we apply your word, Lord, help us to do it rightly. Um, and in harmony with the gospel and faithfulness to the whole counsel of God as revealed in the scriptures. Lord, we want to be faithful to you and your word and to Christ above all else. Help us do that. Help us to be well equipped, Lord, to engage the world we live in, specifically people in the world who have adopted some very bad ways of thinking. Uh, so, Lord, help us uh, through this time to, uh, to just have more of the mind of Christ and to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as we jump in, t- today we're going to do a little bit more introductory, uh, a little bit more of an introductory idea to get, to get our bearings here. But we do plan in coming weeks, starting even next week, to start talking about the issue of abortion and there's just a whole lot, as you know, that goes into that topic. So we, we want to talk about abortion for a few weeks coming up. We also want to deal with transgenderism. We want to deal with homosexuality. Uh, we want to deal with uh, critical social justice, as it's being called that, along those, 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 those words, critical theory, things like that. So th- these are things that we're hearing about all the time, and we want to be able to think biblically about how to dissect them. Um, Greg, you, you were speaking a little bit this week as we talked about the idea of a biblical worldview and how to even approach yeah. the topic of worldview. Can you start us off on this? Yeah. Um, so when we, when we come to engage things, guys, we want to, I mean, it's, it seems overly simple to say this, but we want to think, we, we want the Bible to shape our thinking so that when we come across ideas, we, we know what to think about them, how to apply Scripture to them, um, and so a biblical worldview is basically letting the Bible shape how we view the world, how we interpret the world, um, how we identify what's good, how we identify what is evil, um, and, and stuff like that. Um, and so the Bible needs to be, and again, we're using phrases we're very familiar with, but the Bible needs to truly be the foundation of, of how we think and how we live. Um, and so a biblical worldview then, it, you know, there's, if, if you ask five different people, you're going to get five different answers, but they all kind of hone in on a few specific things 
you know, what makes up a worldview? You're asking some of the most basic questions that everyone asks, everyone everywhere asks, and you try to answer them. Everyone everywhere will ask at least five. Like, I, some people will say there's four, some people will say seven, some people will say eight. I'm just going to stick with five. Um, it, at least for me, this is what, what I work with. But a biblical worldview is going to seek to answer these five questions that everyone asks. Number one, who am I? Number two, why am I here? Number three, what's the point of it all? Number four, how should I live? And number five, what happens after I die? Now, you can nuance that a whole lot more specifically, and that's why I say you can come up with more questions and lots of sub-questions to each of those. But again, I'll say them again in case you're trying to write those down. Everybody everywhere asks these questions um, and worries about these to some level or extent. Number one, who am I? Number two, why am I here? Number three, what's the point of it all? Why does everything or anything matter? Number four, how then should I live? And number five, what happens after I die? Everybody, everywhere is going to think about those things. So that's fundamental to who we are as human beings. It doesn't matter what your culture is. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your standing in society is. Everybody's going to have an answer to that. Um, and, and I think um, those are big, vital questions that we all need to ask. And so we want then to say, what does the Bible say to those things? Because they get at fundamental issues that the Bible is very concerned to answer. Um, and so you think first and foremost about who am I? Who am I? Who are you? Um, we're a human being. Well, what, what's a human being? Like, what does that even mean? Um, depending on your, your foundation, you're going to answer that question very differently. Uh, you think of the question related to that, why am I here? Who am I and why am I here? If you want to think about two questions that fundamentally define, in my opinion, where, where society starts to go wrong, it's these two. Because the theory of evolution has so pervaded the mindset of so many people and just the way we think, every bit of entertainment, every bit of media, every bit of everything operates on the foundation that the, the theory of evolution is true, meaning that the earth is nothing more and our exist, well, specifically you and I, are no more than the products of billions of years of blind, random, biological mutations and accidents that happen to come together to make you right now. So in the grand scheme of things, who are you? You're an accident. You're an accident. You're just a happy accident. Who am I? Why am I here? Well, you're here because things happen to go your way. You're only here for a little while, and then you're gone forever, and that's it. Um, you think about the implications of that. When you tease out the doctrine of evolution... You know, you think of um, the survival of the fittest and, you know, the more advanced, the more evolved species are the ones that move on and the less evolved to go away. Think about the damage that that way of thinking has done to our world in the last century and a half. It underlies um, communism, um, Marxism, which, you know, it underlied what Hitler did in Nazi Germany with his seeking to have this master Aryan race and well, hey, the Jews are convenient scapegoats. Let's get rid of them. Um, this evolutionary way of thinking that some of us are more evolved or even more human than other people. That argument played into the, 
the racism and the slavery that we saw in our own nation's history. Um, and so who am I? Why am I here? How we answer that fundamentally changes everything. If you really are just a more advanced animal than the next person, then well, of course, give in to your animal urges. You're only here for about 50 to 70 years anyway. Just give in to it. Let it have free reign. And that's literally what we see taking place all around us today. But let's flip that. And let's say, let's answer this question, who does the Bible say I am? The Bible says I'm a human being, meaning I am made in the image and likeness of God. I and you, we have the utmost worth and value because we bear the image of the almighty, eternal, all-powerful, good, righteous creator. And he made us of all that we see, even the stars. You think Psalm 8, you know, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is, who is man that you were mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And yet, God says, we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor to have dominion, to bear the image of God, to spread the, the glory of God through his image bearers over the entire world. You're not here by accident. You're here because you are here because God made you. God brought you into this world to bear his image, to know him. Um, and so who are you? Why are you here? Completely different answer. And when you get a completely different answer to those, just those first two questions, it entirely changes how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, how you treat other people, how you view what you do with your words and your, your life completely fundamentally changes everything. And so that's when we talk about bringing a biblical worldview to bear on the issues that we face in our culture today. That means when we go to bat, when we have these conversations, we are presupposing, assuming that what God's word says about us, about the world is true. And it's not up for debate. Now, we're gonna seek to reason and persuade and give answers and all of that, but the foundation is God said it. This is his perspective on everything and his perspective is true and right and uncontestable. And therefore, that's the perspective we have to keep in mind and bring to bear whenever we engage the issues and specifically the people who adopt those issues today. Yeah, so ju jumping off that point, going back to the idea of how does evolutionary biology and the assumption that naturalistic uh, causes are why we are here, there is no intelligent designer, there is no God, there is no maker, we are here by absolute random accident. You know, you know the big bang of, from nothing, you know, how, how did that happen? You know, wh where did that come from? What, what, what began all this? But here we are, right? We're, we're here. How does that affect how we treat each other? How does that affect morality? How does that affect our understanding of what is right and wrong? Well, I'm borrowing this illustration from someone else, but my, my wife's phone screen broke yesterday. We, we thought we were going to have to get a new phone, which was somewhat terrifying how much phones cost. But uh, so we ended up getting it fixed for cheaper than we expected. But if, if you think of this illustration, uh, again, you, you take, a, take an iPhone or take your smartphone, and you know, you're, you're at the house, and you're looking up, and you, you, you want to you, you hang a picture up in the living room. And there's no nail up there yet. So you, you, get, you get the nail out, and you, you go over to the spot in the living room wall, and you put the nail up against the wall, and you just start hammering away with your phone, right? And you do that for a little while, and after, I don't know, like the fourth or fifth hit, a crack appears on the front of your iPhone, and you go, uh-oh, and then you keep hammering anyway. Before long, the nail has absolutely destroyed the front of your screen and has destroyed your phone, and you turn around, and there's hardly any, any pixels or anything showing up. It's just the thing's all gone blank, and you start yelling. Imagine someone doing this. You start yelling, this is a terrible phone. 
I couldn't hammer one nail with this phone. This phone is awful. You say, excuse me, uh, we, do we need to call the people with the white jackets here to, to, to haul this person away to the insane asylum? What, what's going on here? Why, why, what are you talking about? You, and what you would say was, well, you can't judge the quality of a smartphone based on how well it can hammer nails. Why? Because a smartphone was not designed to hammer nails. You don't measure something by the purpose for which it was not made, right? That, that makes, it's, it's called insanity. To measure a phone based on how well it can hammer nails is insane because you're not, you're not measuring it by its purpose. Okay, so how do you measure the purpose of anything? You realize why it was made, what's, what's its goal, what's its purpose, and then you measure how good it is or how bad it is by what? By how well it fulfills its purpose. That's obvious, right? We, we function that way every day of the week. Now, let's think about evolutionary biology. According to naturalistic evolution, what is the purpose, capital P, the design, the purpose of human beings? And you can't say to reproduce your DNA because that's not our purpose. That's what we do, but it's not what we were designed to do. It is not our purpose. It's what we do. It's not what we're designed to do. So if you really are a consistent evolutionist, what would you say? You would say, we don't have an objective purpose. We are a random accident. We just do what we do, right? We're, we're not, there's no intelligent designer. What that means is if you don't have a purpose, how can you tell whether a person is good or bad, right or wrong? How do you know? And the, the answer is, well, you, you can't until you know something's purpose, right? Just like saying the phone is bad because it can't hammer nails is insane, so from an atheist perspective, saying that a person murdering another person is evil is equally insane because until you know your purpose you can't measure the quality of something. Does that make sense? If we don't have a purpose objectively because we're an accident, then you can't say there's a good person and there's a bad person. You can't say there's a better person and a worse person. All you can say is there's a person who helps and a person who kills and they're just people. You can't give an objective standard of who's better and who's worse unless you have an objective purpose that we're measuring by. But you don't have that measuring tape from an atheistic perspective. And so what, what strikes me as amazing is how often people use a language of moral standards when there isn't one from, from, from an atheistic framework. So consistent Darwinism, you can't talk about good and bad, right and wrong, evil and virtuous, those things don't exist objectively. All you have is subjective opinions of what someone prefers versus, versus someone else. So I think that's a huge distinction, and that's a point that we need to be making with our friends who don't agree with us on this. We need to ask them, if you think that we are a cosmic accident, no designer, no objective purpose, then how can you speak of something being right or wrong? What's the standard that you're using? What's the objective standard you use to measure human behavior? And they don't, they don't have something. And so I would, I would, in a friendly way, ask questions to move in that direction because if they can't give an answer to that most basic question, they might start to realize there's fundamental issues in, in the worldview. Well, and this gets to what uh, you've heard this kind of, kind of language before. Um, well, that, that's what's true for you. That might not be true for me. That's your truth, not my truth. Um, and so if we're going to go that route... You know, all you have to do is give the right example or the right, um, the right situation where people who would say, well, you can't tell me that I'm wrong and I can't really tell you you're wrong. I remember when I was in college, this was an illustration. The Lord, you know, it was one of those things. I'd been dealing with some of this, wrestling with it. And I was talking with one of these guys. Y'all know the Tate Student Center where y'all like did the great exchange. They'll get um, some of these holiness preachers up there every now and then. And man, do they fire people up. They'll be arguing and back and forth and all of this. And it brings out 
you know, the most um, eloquent of the atheistic, atheists uh, of the student body. And so if you're there, you actually get some good opportunities to, to talk to people. And I remember talking with this guy, um, you know, after one of those guys had been preaching, and we were just, you know, kind of discussing, like, truth and all of that. And he was trying to tell me, well, there's no absolute standard. There's no absolute truth, um, you know, which one person can say is true for all times and all places. And I was like, well, let's, let's take your position to its end, and let, let, let me see what you think. And I asked him, um, and at the time, I didn't know enough to press this beyond, but beyond where it went. But I asked him, I was like, so say somebody walk, breaks into your house and rapes your girlfriend in front of you. If what you're saying is true, you can't tell him he's wrong because that's true and good for him. He didn't have an answer for that. He obviously would not be consistent with his position, and he would say, well, I'm going to defend my girlfriend. But it's like, no, if, if, if you're going to be consistent and there is no absolute truth, you can't tell that guy he's wrong, and you can't tell him that he shouldn't be doing that because that's what's true for him, and he's operating according to his truth, doing what's right for him. Um, so here's the thing. People, because everyone is made in the image of God, according to Romans 1, everyone has, um, you know, through creation and through our own conscience, we have an awareness of the reality of the God of the Bible. Now, we don't have, not everybody has access to this book, but everybody knows there is a creator to whom they are accountable. And people are going to suppress that truth as much as they can. But they can't get away from it, no matter how hard they try. You break into the house of a thief, He's going to try to stop you from stealing his stuff, even though he justifies himself breaking into your house and stealing your stuff. Why? Because we can't get away from the fact that we're all made by God, that there is a standard of right and wrong that has been woven into us and into the world. And as much as we try to deny it, even the most ardent atheists, they ultimately fail to do so because they're going to say there are some things you should do and some things you shouldn't do. I want to talk for a minute about an article, uh, a guy named Aaron Wren, R-E-N-N, Aaron Wren, uh, wrote uh, a few months ago called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Just follow me here for a second. I, I, it gives a little bit of a background to what I think is going on in the world. You can quibble with his dates here. You can argue about details. That, that's fine. But just listen to his, his overall thought, I think, is onto something. He, he mentions three kinds of, uh, th three, three moments in our society since the 1950s, and he calls them positive world neutral world, and negative world. Positive world, let's start with that one. Positive world, so he, he says, if you look at statistics, uh, about 49% of Americans went to church in the 1950s, which is amazing. I mean, that's like a high number, right? For half of people were going to church, and he calls this positive world. Uh, th this does not mean, by the way, that, um, that the world loved Christianity. What he's trying to say is, our culture was so overrun by churches and church-going people that to be a respectable member of society, you, you kind of had to go to church. Uh, if you wanted to be a lawyer, if you wanted to be in real estate, if you wanted to be a politician, if you wanted to be a, a public school teacher or whatever, you kind of had to have a church you went to to kind of validate yourself, to give you credibility. If you didn't go anywhere, if you're an atheist in the 1950s, people don't necessarily trust you. Like, well, what? I don't know. So positive world meant there was, there was social uh, benefit to come from having a church-going background, to, to, to calling yourself a Christian. And during this, so well, let's say that there was a turning point right around the JFK assassination where you could start to see the sexual revolution moving in in the 60s, and you, you have a turn. But still, even from 1963, JFK's death, up till, say, uh, he, he, he gives 1994, uh, from that time period, 
It was still what he calls positive world, which means there was basic social benefit to being an upstanding Christian citizen and going to church on Sunday. It would, it would help you in the marketplace rather than hurt you, generally speaking. Then, 1994, uh, you have uh, a number of things happen. Uh, cities start being cleaned up a little bit, and so there starts to be a change about how cities work. But th there was two Christian responses to positive world, okay? Number one, you've all heard of the seeker-sensitive movement. Uh, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, uh, you know, Rick Warren at Saddleback. Uh, kind of today, Andy Stanley would still be in a similar kind of vein of that. It's a seeker-sensitive mindset is the idea of saying, uh, you know, most people want to know more about God. They kind of want to move toward God. Generally, they, they would argue, uh, I'm going to disagree with these assumptions here, but the, the argument was if we just make a big shiny church and we can kind of do music in a, a kind of pop cultural way, and we, we'll kind of dumb down the sermons a little bit. We'll water it down a little bit, deal more with pragmatic, practical issues like how to help your marriage or how to date or how to do this and that. We're going to kind of leave the theological stuff to the side. We won't talk about hot-button moral issues like abortion or homosexuality from the pulpit. That's going to turn people off right away. So what we do is we, we, we fine-tune our church for non-church people. We make churches that non-church people love to attend. That's like the motto of some of these churches. And so we, everything is tuned towards evangelism to a fault, right? To the point where you're not actually being consistently biblical. You're just trying to bring in people and, and trying to win them. So uh, those churches became huge in the 80s, right? You just had massive, massive uh, seeker-sensitive churches. Because we were in positive world, there was still that social benefit. There was another group you, you know about, the moral majority, uh, Jerry Falwell, uh, what's his name, Pat... Uh, Pat Robertson, or you remember Pat Robertson, the guy who did the Christian Broadcasting Network? I guess he's still living, but he's been around for quite a while. But you had the sort of moral majority, uh, the, the culture wars of the 1980s right around there. Their take was, was different. Their, theirs was less sensitive to the culture and more counteracting the culture and, and doing things that way. And uh, like Liberty University comes out of that, things like that. Okay, 1994-ish is when the, you can start to mark a turn. And this turn goes from 1994 really to Barack Obama's second uh, time in office, so say about 2014, this is what they call neutral world. So neutral world, as you might guess, means there's not a huge downside of being a church-going person at the workplace. It's not a big downside in the 90s, right? But there's not a huge benefit either. Like, you know, whatever works for you. If you're a good Buddhist, a good Hindu, a good whatever, a good Christian, that's great. We don't really care what you believe. Just, you know, be, be a decent person. And so cultural engagement in neutral world 94, say to say 2014, this is where, for instance, Tim Keller, I think, was, became really huge in this time period because he started playing more to cultural elites in this time period and, and was able to, now listen, my wife was converted reading Tim Keller. I've benefited greatly from Tim Keller. I, I, you know, I've listened to, I don't know, hundreds of his sermons. I've read his books. I, I, I'm, I went through a phase where I quoted him every five seconds. Uh, I, I've been a huge Keller fan of the past. Things are changing for me a little bit in regards to Keller over the last few years because of some of the stuff we're discussing here. Keller's approach was more of a cultural engagement, and the way this worked was he was often, you know, he'd be interviewed by New York Times, usually positively, maybe Washington Post, or he'll be on MSNBC, you know, on the Joe Scarborough show, and he'll, he'll be interviewed, generally looked upon positively even by secular elites. And his church in New York City, as you know, he started it in the 1980s. And it exploded. You know, after 9-11, they had thousands of people coming. It grew to 5,000 people, and, and uh, it was astonishing. Many people were converted through his ministry, no question about it. And he, he did a lot of great good in that time. But the concerns that I started having about Keller have, have arisen in the last few years, and this is, this, these are serious concerns. Number, number one is his cultural engagement that's kind of given him a seat in the upper echelons where he's been kind of getting fist bumps from the, from the high-ranking people in society to some degree, and that's starting to change even now. It has led Keller to, 
for instance. I mean, I'm not trying to beat up on him. I'm trying to give an example of kind of what I'm talking about, okay? I, I'm showing gratitude to the man, but I also have serious issues. Um, so he, he wrote a book on justice issues called Generous Justice, where he's dealing with biblical justice issues. And um, the book is dealing with a lot of things, dealing with the impoverished, dealing with the poor, dealing with orphans and widows, a lot of very valid and biblical things. He's in New York City writing a book about biblical justice. You know what the number one justice issue in New York City is? It's abortion. More African-American babies were aborted than born, what, five years ago in New York City? More African babies aborted than born in New York City a couple, a few years ago. So if we're, if we're talking about a, a major, if we're talking about a major justice issue in New York City, abortion would be number one, like times several thousand. Like it, it would be way bigger than, than, and everything else matters too. But he wrote a whole book on justice written for New York City, and guess how many times he talked about abortion? I don't think it's mentioned in the book. And he was interviewed, why didn't you talk about abortion? He said, well, in a New York audience, it's, I'd have to write half the book about that topic. They wouldn't even understand what I was kind of trying to, so do you see the, do you see the issue here? The, the, the cultural issues that the culture wants to hear about, like helping the poor is generally something our culture likes. They're all for that. But there's a, there's a tendency to want to be shy about the culturally non-popular issues like what about justice in regards to sexuality and marriage? What about justice in regards to abortion? Those things are not going to be major points of emphasis in the cultural engagement milieu because it's not going to play well in, the, in those environments. And so I, my, my major critiques of Keller now are coming from the fact that he's really loud on issues that the culture wants to be loud about. He's almost silent on issues the culture doesn't want to hear about. And Russell Moore would be in a similar category, I think, right now, where when it comes to a lot of these issues, he, he gets a lot quieter when those issues come up. If you're wondering who that is, he was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Committee, commission. Com commission from the SBC over the last few years, and, and, and he's now with Christianity Today. But th these are concerns that I share uh, with Greg and others to say, uh, is this approach really the, the most faithful approach in the culture that we live in? So now I'm going I'm to shift to Greg here, but as we move into negative world, let's say roughly 2014 till now, have you felt the change to negative world in the last decade? So now, saying I'm a Christian doesn't, get, doesn't score me points with anybody right now. <laughs> saying I'm a Christian that I go to a church that really believes the Bible, are you going to get hired in Hollywood to, to be in the next movie? No. Are you going to be hired in Manhattan for the big job of the CEO of this company if you're holding to a consistently biblical worldview when it comes to Christian morality? No. So what's happening now is in negative world, we're moving into a place where if, if I don't agree to use the transgender pronouns at my workplace, I could face real consequences in my place of work. I may not get hired for this job that I want. I may get fired from this really good job that I have because we are moving into negative world, which means today Christianity is not seen as an asset that makes you more credible. Believing the Bible actually makes you discredible, disreputable in, in the wider workplace. It actually makes you hateful and bigoted. And so, Greg, some thoughts about moving into negative world where we find ourselves now. Yeah. Um, what this does is cause us to be aware that, I mean, you've, kinda, you've already said this, but the U.S. is not the same as it used to be. I mean, regardless of your position on all the hot-button issues, Christian nationalism, whatever, there's no denying the influence of Christianity on the history of this country, its culture, its morals, its laws, and all of that. Um, you can't deny that unless you just stick your head in the sand. And so Christianity has, like you said, up through the 50s, largely been in favor. Like there, and, and when we say that, keep in mind they used to read the Bible in schools, they used to pray, kids knew the Ten Commandments. And again, regardless of your, your thoughts on, well, should we have that in schools or not, guess what? Murder was a lot less. Like the society in terms of basic morality was better than it is now. And you could talk to people. You could go up to somebody randomly on the street and say, 
hey, do you know Jesus? Well, I'm not sure if I'm, well, you know, you need to repent and believe. And they automatically knew what you were talking about. Um, and so we're moving into a time where the familiarity that, we, that our culture and people in general used to have with Christianity is not there. And so we have to, and I think the church has been, I think it's, it's been making progress in this, but it was very slow in some parts to, to wake up to the fact that people don't share our language anymore. A lot of the metaphors and the analogies and the ways we, we talk and think, it's, it's being eroded. Um, and so we move into a world, the negative world, as Wren calls it, a world that is much more hostile to Christianity rather than friendly. One of the reasons they're so hostile is they're no longer familiar with it. All they know of Christianity is the caricatures that they hear on the news. That's it. They haven't researched it themselves. They haven't actually opened the Bible and read what Jesus said and read what the New Testament says. Even the Old Testament, they haven't done that. They have, it's a, for lack of a better way of saying it, a presupposition is being built into people to where they just presuppose Christianity to be bigoted, misogynist, which is, you know, your patriarch, your, um, you treat women like they're less, that kind of stuff, and that's an overgeneralization. Um, you're patriarchal, you believe men should be the leaders, and, women, like, and, and all of these things are bad. Like, it's just this, this presupposition, this assumption um, that, if, that if you believe that God made men as men and women as women, like, you're bigoted, you're hateful because of that. Like, so we are entering into a phase in which people are very unfamiliar with what the Bible teaches more broadly. They're very hostile to it, even though they've never actually studied it themselves. Um, and so we have to keep that in mind as we start to talk with people in our work deal with issues that come up with neighbors and friends and family and all of that um, because so many people are being nurtured in an environment that's keeping them ignorant of the Bible and that is trying to breed a hostility to the Bible. Um, And so the mindset that we have to have is not that we can just go up and talk Bible with people. We've got to go back to the foundational level with folks. Like pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism, yeah, like you say, you know, used to be if we talked about God in our society, more, than all, more likely than not, they'd know we're talking about the God of the Bible. That is not the case anymore. We have to define what we mean by God. Used to be we talk about Jesus. Well, again, we're talking about the Jesus of the Bible, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. There's so many different opinions about who Jesus is. <clears throat> you can't, we can't take it for granted that when we talk about you need to trust in Jesus, that they understand who Jesus is that we're telling them to trust in. And so it's, this isn't original to me. I get this, um, I heard this the first time, I think, from one of my professors at uh, Southern Seminary, Dr. Tim Booker. Um, it was an evangelism class. And he talked about, you know, there's, there's two types of people. There's like an Acts 2 and then an Acts 17. You think Acts 2, the situation is Peter preaching at Pentecost, preaching to Jews who are familiar with the Bible, familiar with concepts. So there are things he doesn't have to do. There are things he doesn't have to explain because it's a shared understanding. The term Messiah would have been universally known Correct. at yeah, the time. Absolutely. He didn't have to say who the Messiah was. They, they understood what that word meant. But then you go to Acts chapter 17 when Paul's in Athens, um, and he starts preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they are saying, you're, you're talking strange. This is foreign deities, foreign gods. Like, and, and Paul, when he, when he goes to preach to the Areopagus, to the cultural elite, he starts at the very beginning. 
The God who made the, earth, the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man. He starts with getting the doctrine of God right. And then he gets the doctrine of humanity right, which then allows him to start talking about Jesus and the resurrection and the judgment to come. And the point is, when we're in an Acts 17 type of culture, we cannot assume anything, any common ground with the people we're trying to share the gospel with because that common ground has, is not there. And so we have to take a mindset that says, I have to be ready to explain who God is and who he's not, who people are and who we're not, um, what the world is and what it's not, what sin is and what it's not, who Jesus is. And, and like, so we, we have to build things from the ground up mm -hmm. because people are just plain ignorant and oftentimes wrongly hostile towards uh, the Christian faith. No, that, that's very helpful. Yeah, that's, that's great. When Paul's talking to a pagan audience, he starts with creation mm -hmm. and humanity. Yeah. When he's talking to a Jewish audience, he starts with Old Testament prophecies and the Messiah. Yeah. So it's a very different starting point. So let me, let me say a word about uh, race in our country, and we'll, we'll, get, on, we'll get to this later, uh, a, week, a few weeks from now. But <clears throat> so when you go back to the 1960s, and uh, I want to know more about this than I even do currently, but when you, when you look at a guy like MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., um, now, just let me just let me just say something important here because this often doesn't get said. Uh, obviously, I, I want to say something extremely about God's God's incredible common grace working through Him. But let me let me just say something important. It's not popular, but it, as far as theology goes, MLK was not Orthodox. So, so th this is important. He he, uh, as far as we can tell, he denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. At least in his seminary papers, he denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which is kind of shocking. And there seems to be very strong evidence he was sexually immoral with his, with his, uh, toward his wife, he, that he committed adultery on numerous occasions. Now, that to the side for a second. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. I mean, I, that's, a, that's very important. But I want to say, God still in his common grace used MLK in a great way in the civil rights movement. And here's how. MLK, whatever you think about his theology, because he clearly had some serious issues in his theology, but whatever you think of that, the way he was preaching in the civil rights movement was an appeal to biblical authority, Okay? Now, he may not have always been consistent with this appeal, but he was saying God made us in his image. He was saying, let justice, you know, roll down like the waters, you know, like a mighty stream. He was appealing to the Bible, and his basic message was, let's become more biblically faithful, not less biblical, in order to solve the way that we're, we're mistreating each other. And with, with the nonviolent protests and these kinds of things, he, he, did, he, he was used greatly to turn things around with the civil rights movement. And here's what I would say I think is happening. In the 60s, you had what was an appeal to Scripture, to try to overturn real racism like Jim Crow, right? The real segregation that was, that was evil. And it was an appeal to the Bible. It was, it was an appeal to Scripture, to God's authority. That was, that was the idea. Be judged not by the color of your skin, but by what? The content of your character, right? That's the, in, the, in the famous I Have a Dream speech. Well, when you fast forward to today, even looking at a post-George Floyd world that we live in, the, the appeal is no longer even close to that. I, I, the message of MLK to me has been completely turned around to where I'm not sure MLK's message would fit at all with the message today that is being given on the issue of race. So today what's being said is really not let's become faithful to the Bible. Let's really change biblical categories to try to fit with an ideology that is not faithful to Scripture on, on how to think about race. And so everything starts getting, instead of saying don't be judged by the color of your skin, but by the content of the character, now people are actually being judged by their skin. Right? So, so you end up being categorized as you're in this category of an oppressor or you're in this category of oppressed. And therefore, if you're, if you're for instance, if you have white skin that links you with these, this particular past oppression, it makes you guilty of these sins. And if you're of this, so it, it's really the opposite of MLK's message, <laughs> weirdly enough. And so what, what started off as a, as a push toward biblical justice has moved towards a kind of secularized view of race and justice that we actually think is not true justice. And so we're calling it critical social justice, which is not a compliment. Uh, we believe that that is 
the, 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 the direction things have been moving in recent years has been uh, disconcerting, to say, it, to say it nicely. And so, uh, I mean, weirdly enough, anti-racism, as Ibram X. Kendi has been calling it, is a form of racism. It, the, the way it is actually defined. He actually says you basically have to be racist and reversed in order to fix racism, is, is basically what he said. Uh, so we're, we're going to get into some of that more clearly. But a, the biblical answer to race issues and ethnic prejudice is the right answer. It is a faithful answer, and it is the actual answer that could actually begin to fix uh, the, the sinfulness that we see in our society. The cultural's, uh, culture's approach to this is doing nothing but inflaming uh, racial tension. I, I mean, if you think that since critical race theory has come on the, on the horizon in the last few years, if you think that, that, that it has actually solved or lessened a racial tension and hostility, I think it's done the opposite. I, I think that instead, uh, the biblical answer is the more faithful answer uh, that we need to look to. Yeah, and on that, again, I know we're going to go more in depth on this later, but go back to the worldview questions we asked, okay? Um, who am I? Uh, why am I here? Why does it matter? How should I live? Um, just take those four with the, the like, Kendi, uh, Crenshaw, all these folks who are with the, the critical social justice, critical race theory, which, you know, big buzzwords. Um, but this is where the biblical, how the Bible answers these things matters, is because if we're not careful, we can start to say, well, that actually, you know, I, I can see some merit to what these folks are saying. Um, may, maybe, maybe I am more, I'm actually racist and I didn't know it. Here's the problem with that. Um, here's the problem with it. It's adding a way of thinking about ourselves that the Bible doesn't call us to think about ourselves. It says, who are you? Well, you are your skin color and your, your skin color's history. And, and your that, gender and your gender history gen and the, whatever and it may be. And you need to be defined by that. That is what makes you who you are. Whether you're a human being made in God's image, uh, no, you're your history, your skin color, and what your skin co people of your skin color did. Um, and secondly, um, what was the point I was going to make? Um, so your, your, your history, your skin color, and that's what defines you. Why, you know, why are you here? Um, how should you live? Well, guess what? You're going to live according to that, and you should be judged according to your skin color and what people with your skin color have done in history. So even if you make a profession of faith in Jesus and you're doing your best to, to, to love other people, okay, that's not enough. That's not enough. These other categories of your skin color, your skin color's history, your gender, gender, whatever, that starts to trump what the Bible actually says. And that's where these things get so dangerous for the church because, well, we want to be compassionate. We want to be kind. Obviously, if, we, you know, like Christians support, you know, doing away with slavery, doing away with like the sex trade and sex trafficking and all that. And we think, well, because we're, you know, hey, that's trying to help do away with oppression. When in reality, like you said, these are actually creating a reverse form of oppression while claiming to be undoing oppression. It's like, in the name of, of anti-oppression, I oppress you. Even though they wouldn't say that, that's exactly what's happening. Um, and so, again, understanding what Scripture says about who we are, why we're here, how we're to treat one another. How does the Bible say we're to, and you're going to talk some about this today, I think, in your sermon. Um, how does the Bible say we're to treat people who have mistreated us? Critical social justice and all that's going to say, well, reparations and you need to be canceled. And, and, and it's like the moment we start to say, well, that sounds good because racism's bad and, well, we want to combat racism, like we have just drank deeply of something that is profoundly unbiblical. Um, yeah, no, that's helpful. And so we're, we're coming closer to the end here today, but a couple other thoughts. So uh, 
one of the popular notions of how to engage culture with, uh, during neutral world, you know, during this time, the last 20 years, um, is something that's been kind of called a winsome third way-ism. Now, if that sounds like, what does that mean? Winsome just kind of mean, you know, being agreeable in a way that the culture may approve of you and not necessarily call you names for. So winsome, and that's been a big word, by the way, in recent years. And then third wayism is something that I, Keller in particular sort of popularized, but it's been picked up by a lot of people. The idea is uh, we, we disagree with this side and this side. Christianity is a completely different thing altogether. It's a third way. It's a, it's a different way to handle things. And there are certain truths that are, that, uh, certain things about that are true, I think. But the issue is this. In the effort to be so-called winsome in our culture, now, now, now let me just pause here. Scripture says, you have to turn to this, but it says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So I'm all for being gracious and patient and kind. But the, this, this notion today of winsomeness, I think, goes beyond the Bible and at times may even go against the Bible because the idea is that we should minimize offense with our message so as to maximize openness in response to the gospel. And while I agree, I don't want to be a jerk and turn someone off to the gospel, that's obviously correct. I don't want to be unnecessarily, you know, a hindrance to the gospel by, gospel by my attitude. But sometimes people start thinking that telling the whole truth from Scripture may create a hindrance that turns someone off to the gospel, and therefore I shouldn't actually be really loud and clear about the hindrance if I'm asked about it or if it comes up in, in some way. And so the idea of having to leave out significant issues in today's culture because they may not be well received by others in order for the sake of evangelism is the danger. So if I can just say this clearly, our goal is not to be unevangelistic, okay? Just like with seeker-sensitive churches, the goal was always evangelism, but you can't evangelize to the point of being unfaithful to Scripture, if, if I will not say what is true clearly, because that's the job that God has given to us to speak truth clearly, if I will not do that for the sake of evangelism, what am I actually winning people over to? If I'm winning them over to a distorted notion that's not fully biblical, it hides the parts that are offensive because I don't want people to be turned off early on, I want to draw them in. Even if I have the room full of people and they seem to be following Jesus, but if they don't believe or understand these important issues that can get you in trouble today, and they have never been taught clearly on them, they don't have a biblical position on them, am I really leading them to biblical faithfulness? And so, I've said this over and over again, missions and evangelism are as important as you get, right? I mean, you can't, those are as important as you can have in the whole world. Missions and evangelism is, is critically important, so I'm not, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But those are also the two areas, missions and evangelism. Those are the two areas where liberalism is most likely to come in the door. You say, is that a knock on missions? No. What I'm saying is the whole heart of missions and evangelism is wanting lost people to come to know Christ. And the, the, the thought that I might say something true that turns someone off to the gospel really makes me want to hide that true thing in a way that may not be loving and truthful in order to win this person. But in the process, am I actually winning them to what is true? Am I actually winning them to Christ? And so um, I think we need to be all the more on the alert to say, are we doing things by the book? Are we doing things in accordance with God's Word? Or are we bending the truth to try to get approval from others, even if it is in the name of evangelism? So uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough issue there, but we, we, we want to be people who are on the side of truth. And um, yeah, thoughts on that? We've got just a few minutes. Um, no, I, I'm good. What, well said. One, one point here as we wrap up is um, 
the thought really of churches and seminaries who are able to hopefully make it for a while here, <laughs> legally speaking, but for churches and seminaries and Bible colleges to, to be uh, places where people can go, where they can really get biblical teaching and be around a uh, solid biblical community. Because um, if we don't have each other, we're going to be in some serious trouble uh, in, in these coming years. We need a community we can go back to and say, hey, I mean, I've talked to numerous of you who have said it here at work, here's an issue with transgender pronouns. Here's what's going on. I've talked to numerous people at this church who've said, I, you know, pray for me. I've got to talk to my, my advisor. I've got to tell them that I, I can't, I, I love these people, but I cannot say what is not true about the he or she issue. And so, uh, you know, just even the last few weeks talking to, to a member here about that and just saying, man, we need each other more than ever because we are facing things that generations previous did not face in positive world, right? In positive world, this was not going on. But now in negative world, it is going on. And so uh, I think more than ever, we need biblical training. We need to be around each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to be built up in our faith and uh, sent back out every week into the world so that we can love people well and not compromise when, when it's going to get, I think, increasingly difficult uh, to not give in and to not compromise. I think that's it. Yeah. All right, Greg, let me pray for us. Yeah, let's do that. Heavenly Father, uh, I do pray for these coming weeks as we uh, deal with just a lot of really sensitive issues, important issues, in some cases somewhat complex, but, but still morally, I think, clear in, in your word. But how do we address these things? How do we go about uh, talking to others about this? Uh, God, I do pray that you would give us great wisdom as we think about these things, uh, God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to your word, that we would love others well, uh, that we would love them both uh, with a heart that cares and also with a mind that will speak what is true. And God, I pray that in the midst of the chaos of the sexual revolution that is just going so strong right now, I, I pray, God, that for many who are hurt and damaged by this movement, which is many, many people, whether it's children with a transgender issue or whether it's adults in the homosexual, uh, homosexual community, God, I pray that for people who would wake up in their sin and, and realize the, the devastation of this and the, and the emptiness of this and the, and, and the wickedness of, of, this, of these lifestyles and that they would turn and that they would come like the prodigal son and, and embrace Christ and that we would see many thousands of people in coming years come out of these movements uh, like refugees fleeing from a, a very uh, hurtful system of thought and, and life and that they would run to the cross and that they would, like we have, experience forgiveness and transformation and a new life in Christ and that we would have literally thousands and tens of thousands of people in our country in these coming years uh, come to know Christ as a, res as a result of swinging away from these issues and coming out of these issues and seeing that Christ offers the true and better solution and the forgiveness that we all desperately need. So I, I do pray you would equip us in these next few months, uh, help us to love others well, and to be faithful to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Lord willing, uh, we will start talking about the issue of abortion at least for the next two Sundays, and then we will move on from there. So thank you all.